I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's oseamalibu.com, code GLOW. A warning. This episode contains references to suicide. There were actual confrontations, right, between riot police and Santas at certain yes. points. <laughs> yes, there was. <laughs> were you present for any of those? Oh, yeah. The one at Lloyd Center where they put on the riot gear, that one was pretty hysterical. In December 1996, an event called SantaCon took place in Portland, Oregon. For 72 hours, a motley crew of locals and out-of-town visitors raised cheerful hell all over town. Caroling, shaking sleigh bells, bum-rushing clubs and karaoke bars, spritzing gin and tonic into each other's mouths from old Windex bottles. All of them were dressed up as Santa Claus. It was intoxicated revelry as surreal street theater. We started to head to the mall, and they were telling us that we can't go over there. This is Marcy McFarlane. She was among the hundred or so people who showed up at a mall in Portland in full Santa regalia. The plan was for the Santas to join hands around a skating rink in the mall's atrium and attempt to summon the spirit of figure skater Tanya Harding, who was and is very much alive. But the Portland police were not having it. And then we look and it's like, oh my God, they're getting out the riot gear. So we just sang Christmas carols to them, but... I was like, wow, that would be awful if the police beat up, you know, 100 people dressed as Santa outside of the mall. Any Santa that step foot on the mall will be arrested immediately. Their intelligence have told them that we are disruptive. The Santas and the cops squared off. The boys in blue prepared to wail on the gang in red. And then the Santas broke ranks and ran to a nearby light rail station and escaped on a downtown train. All in all, it was a fun weekend. We were trying to spread good cheer, generally speaking. This is John Law, one of the organizers of SantaCon. At one point during that weekend, John and a bunch of other Santas visited the home of a local postal worker who'd helped put the event together. I remember his house was kind of a really co- cool, like, craftsman-style house, kind of run down with a big porch, veranda. Two Santas with uh, semi-automatic rifles on either end of the porch. 
and an airport metal detector in the middle, so you had to go through it to get into the house. John was hanging out on the front lawn when what he describes as a young, buff-looking Santa walked up to him with a notepad and started asking him questions. So I got super paranoid, like, because we'd been following around the cops all, you know, like for two days, right? I'm like, I'm like, are you a cop? He laughs and he goes, do I look like a cop? And I go, yeah, you look like a cop. And, uh, and I go, look, show me your driver's license. And I made him take his wallet out to see if he had a badge. That was uh, when I met Chuck Palahniuk. From Higher Ground, this is The Big Hit Show. I'm Alex Papadimus. Chuck Palahniuk first moved to Portland in 1980, and he was still living there in 1996 when he published his first novel, Fight Club, a book that seemed to come out of nowhere sold about 5,000 copies, and might never have broken through with anybody except avid fans of transgressive literature if director David Fincher hadn't decided to make it into a movie. A movie we're still talking about to this day. But Fight Club didn't come from nowhere. In this episode, we'll find out how this book got written and why. Like Fight Club itself, it's a story about secret societies, double lives, shocking and surreal violence, mind-numbing day jobs, and anti-consumerist mischief. Chapter 2. 34 or 35 Drunk Santas My parents fought like animals. My parents fought like crazy. This is Chuck Palahniuk, author of Fight Club, telling a story about fighting. And so, so much of my childhood and my siblings' childhood was about maintaining peace. We would play Henry Kissinger, where we would hide in the basement. And once mom and dad, once the fighting had reached this huge crescendo, one of us would be chosen to hurt themselves so that a bleeding child or a child with a broken bone suddenly had to be dealt with, and my parents couldn't fight anymore. Over the years, Chuck has explained where Fight Club came from in a lot of different ways, but this might be the chronologically earliest origin story he's ever offered. Here he is on the Tim Ferriss Show podcast. And so I really could not be with conflict. So I wrote the book Fight Club, which is all about this consensual, structured, controlled way of experiencing and exploring conflict and violence that could allow everybody who had problems with conflict to kind of put their toe in the water and kind of experience conflict and develop an ability to be with it, but be less reactive to it. The cliche question that people like to ask writers and that many writers hate answering is, where do you get your ideas? A lot of really crazy stuff happens in Fight Club and in Chuck's other books. But think of something like that scene in Fight Club where the narrator starts punching himself in the face to get what he wants. That's strategic self-injury. It's a modified version of the Kissinger game. The more you learn about Chuck Palahniuk's history, the more apparent it becomes that he spent his career confronting readers with the unthinkable because he spent so much of his life being confronted with the unthinkable. 
Chuck was born in Washington State and grew up about three and a half hours from Portland. But it wasn't until he moved to Portland that he became the writer he was going to be. You are maybe familiar with the TV show Portlandia, which affectionately satirized the 21st century Portland as one of the most woke and twee places on the planet, a hipster utopia where the dream of the 90s never died. But back in the actual 90s, Portland was not nearly as hip or as gentrified or as nice, which was what many people liked about it. It was cheap and it was gritty. This is Joanna Rose, who's a novelist and the former events coordinator for Powell's Books, the gravitational center of literary Portland. Joanna first met Chuck in 1992. It was cheap because nobody was making a lot of money. It was before the, you know, the IT industries moved in, and there weren't really any other major industries here. So yeah, there was, there was nothing going on here. There was nothing to do but read and write. The lure of cheap rent a thriving DIY art scene, bookstores galore, and access to local college writing programs attracted aspiring writers from all over, including Chuck, whose stories were already a little intense for your traditional writing workshop environment. Here's Chuck Polinick from an interview in 2020. My first writing teacher was a very nice workshop uh, led by a writer named Andrea Carlyle, who eventually came to me and said that, that my work was so upsetting to the other writers who are all very nice middle-aged people. And I was, uh, I was this crazy 25-year-old. And they no, the, the other students no longer really felt safe around me. And so she was asking me to leave the workshop. <laughs> but Andrea did tell him about this other guy who'd just moved to Portland. And that's how Chuck ended up studying with Tom Spanbauer. Here's Chuck's friend, Monica Drake, a novelist who's lived most of her life in Portland. To talk about Chuck, I have to talk about Tom, because Tom was really formative for us. Spanbauer was already a published writer. He moved to Portland in the early 90s after putting out his second novel, a surreal gay western called The Man Who Fell in Love with the Moon. Spanbauer started a writing workshop, which he called Dangerous Writing. It cost $20 to sign up. Monica Drake became one of his first students. The first day I met him, he said, I'm HIV positive and I just want to write my stories before I die. Spanbauer was HIV positive. He would be diagnosed with full-blown AIDS in 1996. And he ended up calling his class dangerous writing because his, his philosophy was really about, you know, saying the things you need to say because life is short. And hearing that from somebody who had what was considered essentially a death sentence at the time um, really hit home. It really, it really said that writing was important. They met every Thursday night around Tom's kitchen table. His house was condemned, you know, it literally had no front stairs. It's hard to hear this without thinking of the dilapidated Paper Street house from Fight Club, where the narrator shacks up with Tyler Durden. Except instead of learning to make soap or explosives, Chuck and the rest of Spanbauer's students were learning to make their writing like speaking. To tell their stories, even about dark, painful shit, like they were telling them over beers to a friend. And Chuck took to that right away. Chuck was um, bringing in stories back then that were pretty tight, pretty compressed and punchy, and they moved quickly. And part of it was that workshop structure. The first longer work Chuck workshopped in Tom's class was a book called Invisible Monsters. It did eventually get published in 1999 after Fight Club. 
It's a highly nonlinear story about a disfigured ex-model and a trans woman on a cross-country road trip slash crime spree, and in the mid-90s, no publisher was willing to take a chance on a book like this from an unknown writer. That didn't sell, and he was pissed. This is the novelist Susie Vitello, another member of the Dangerous Writing Circle. He saw himself as an outlier, and I think he was angry at the publishing world for not considering art, you know, in that, in that way. You know, because what is art? It's subversive, you know, and I think publishers were kind of the opposite of dangerous writing at the time, in his opinion. They were just sort of not wanting to take chances on prose that was put together differently, constructed, you know, um, in different forms and that sort of thing. Susie says that after finding no takers for Invisible Monsters, Chuck went into his next project with something to prove. I think it was like New Year's and we were making these um, resolutions for our writing. And we all went around in a circle and um, Fight Club, he hadn't written one word yet, but he just announced to us that he was gonna write a book and it was gonna sell, God damn it, within that year. And that was Fight Club. <laughs> Do you recall giving notes on Fight Club at any point? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We all did. You know, we all did. But there weren't many. I mean, it was kind of like, that's all? You're just you're just going to tease us with one chapter? We want more, 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 you know? Um, yeah. I don't know. It was just, it was, it just really poured out of him in this um, intense way. Susie Vitello is still close to Chuck, as are many of the people who met him through the Dangerous Writing Workshop. And today, they know more about the life experiences that inspired all these intense stories. But back in the day, Chuck didn't talk much about his personal history. He didn't even talk much about his day job. But when Chuck was writing Fight Club, he was also working full-time. In 1986, he'd graduated from the University of Oregon with a journalism degree and thousands of dollars in student debt. So he went to work at the Freightliner Corporation truck plant in Northeast Portland. He started as a mechanic on the assembly line, building trucks. He figured he'd stick around for a year or so until he could find a job in journalism. He ended up working at Freightliner for 13 years. Some days on the line, they built as many as 27 trucks. But some days were slow. And on the slow days, Chuck would say later, quote, I began writing bullshit in the greasy notebook I kept at my workstation for recording fastener torque specifications. It started on an afternoon at work, two o'clock in the afternoon, right after lunch. He opened his notebook and wrote, the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. Here's Chuck talking in 2012. I wanted to write a short story and I wanted to experiment using rules as a transitional device. So I just had to come up with seven rules. Just arbitrary seven rules, what if, what if there was a place you could go and get into a fight as casually as you would go ask someone to dance? And the whole thing was just an experiment in structuring. By the end of that day, he had written what became chapter six of the novel. It's the part where the narrator starts coming to work with injuries sustained at Fight Club. The first sentence is, two screens into my demo to Microsoft, I taste blood and have to start swallowing. Fight Club reads like all the edgiest parts of post-war American literature, 
the blunt force voice of mid-century noir, the minimalism of Raymond Carver, the shock tactics of transgressive 90s fiction, racing toward the wall of the millennium in a car with no brakes. And because it's a story told largely in declarative one-sentence paragraphs, striking images, and zingy cynical one-liners, it also reads more than a little bit like a screenplay. Do you like that? It's called foreshadowing. But in that deadpan, nothing matters, tough guy narrator voice, Chuck was writing about true things. Years later, Chuck would write that Fight Club was, quote, less a novel than an anthology of my friends' lives. I do have insomnia and wander with no sleep for weeks. Angry waiters I know mess with food. They shave their heads. My friend Alice makes soap. My friend Mike cuts single frames of smut into family features. Every guy I know feels let down by his father. Even my father feels let down by his father. Susie Vitello again. He read a scene um, with Marla in it. (laughs) I think I remember the first words. They were something like... um, Marla looked beautiful after suffering from cancer for whatever months or something like that. It was just this, this, this like, really, uh, oh, my God, do you really write that kind of a thing um, that, you know, was was so outré that was like, whoa, you know, what what is this? Marla is the only prominent woman character in this extremely male story. I got this dress at a thrift store for one dollar. It was worth every penny. It's a bridesmaid's dress. Someone loved it intensely for one day, then tossed it. Marla's role is to be treated badly by both the narrator and his alter ego. But she's also a goth grunge icon, especially in the film, where she's played by Helena Bonham Carter, although David Fincher briefly considered casting Courtney Love. Marla gets all the best lines and is the only person in the story who almost has her shit together. Chuck pulled Marla from real life, and we've already met her inspiration. What do you make of uh, the idea that Marla Singer from Fight Club is based either partially or entirely on you? I, I think that's awesome, and I am absolutely flattered. Here's Chuck's friend Monica Drake. When I met Chuck, I was... Um, making my life work out in certain ways that he always got a kick out of. Uh, I was very shoestring budget and kind of had always a a bargain or a deal or a way to make things work. He laughed a lot of that. And I sometimes see myself in some of her just ways of managing. But I think Marla is one of the strongest characters in the book. She's not just a prop. Uh, set against the two male characters. She's very uh, vibrant and, and and funny and smart and um, has her own drive. You know, she's doing her own thing. But Marla becomes the closest thing Fight Club has to an antagonist when she shows up at the Paper Street house and turns the narrator and Tyler's cozy bromestic partnership into a love triangle. I mean, Chuck did joke that the Marla character was just tossed in there to um, create that triangle and show that it's not just these two guys or it's not like a gay love story. Chuck was not out back then. And part of why he wasn't out, I think, is because he didn't want his writing to be pigeonholed in the gay and lesbian section. He wanted to write for a broader, you know, sort of uh, wide audience. Which doesn't mean at all that Chuck wasn't exploring his own identity in his work. I think I was very interested in looking at the relationship of a generation of men that were raised by women. 
Susie Vitello again. This father disappeared in his childhood and went off and raised another family and that sort of a thing. So a lot of it had to do with that lack of father in the house, oddly. I think the outcome is this sort of internalized rage, right, that he was trying to express through Fight Club and people getting together and having these, you know, um, just pounding on each other sort of episodes. So I think that was one impetus. Um, but, you know, I think anger really was, was one, just being fed up. In Fight Club, Chuck is also working through older family trauma that goes back to his father's father, a painful history that you have to assume shaped Chuck's fascination with violence and power and the destructive potential of the guy in the next cubicle over. Over the years of getting to know Chuck Palahniuk, we, we came to know that his uh, grandfather had attempted to kill the whole family. Uh, for some reason, the West Coast has an excess of what they call family annihilators, and it seems his um, family was, was one, and his father escaped that murder by hiding under the bed. And uh, that's a pretty rough history, right? Um, to have that level of violence in the family. In that same essay from years ago, the one where Chuck talks about his friends sabotaging food and making soap, Chuck writes, My father thought the story was about his absent father, my grandfather, who killed his wife and himself with a shotgun. My father remembers the boots stamping past the bed and the barrel of the shotgun trailing along near the floor. Then he remembers pouring buckets of sawdust on the bodies to protect them from wasps and flies. There's really no way around it. Suicide, and specifically family murder-suicide, is a through-line in Chuck's personal history and not just on his father's side. Chuck's mother died of cancer in 2009. But Chuck has talked about how, when his mother was younger and unhappily married, she also contemplated taking her own life and her children's lives. She later admitted to my brother that she didn't want to be married to my father, but if she killed herself we would be given to my father's family. And she was a rational, intelligent, very attractive person. And yet she still had this impulse. It's not surprising that the theme of suicide recurs and recurs in Chuck's work. He's almost certainly the only person who has ever written an essay about how to kill yourself for Men's Health magazine. It's there in Fight Club, too. Marla tries to kill herself at one point, and the space monkeys of Project Mayhem are not just prepared but weirdly stoked to die in the course of their mission if it comes to that. And in the book's climax, the narrator shoots himself, although he's doing it in an attempt to kill Tyler. But also, Fight Club, the club, at its core, is about a kind of metaphorical suicide. Ritualized self-destruction designed to bring about the death of the old you, the fake you that worries about bullshit. It's about murdering a false self to birth the person you really are. In a weird way, taking all this trauma and turning it into stories, blowing it up to absurd scale, even having fun with it in a magazine article, is exactly what Chuck was learning to do at the Dangerous Writing Workshops. Here's Chuck speaking to podcaster Tim Ferriss in 2020. Dangerous writing is effectively about taking an idea, something that is unresolved and threatening to you, and blowing it up and exploring it and making it worse than you ever imagined it could be. And in doing so, really exhausting your emotional reaction to it. And typically that makes the problem itself go away entirely. 
To his friends, Chuck is a sensitive and vulnerable guy who's also conscious of the darker propensities in his DNA. Monica Drake again. I feel like Chuck has, he, he may disagree with me, but I feel like he really has these aspects of himself that are uh, filled with the urge to make a nice house, to be a generous person, to be kind, to support other people, to give gifts. But I think he also knows he has that side of his family that reflects a side of himself that is rooted in more anger or frustration of just the idea that we have more than one um, person or history inside our ourself is, is reflected in Fight Club, but I think Chuck actually feels it. Uh, I don't think it's um, just just flash, you know, just tough guy stuff. No one we talked to who knew Chuck back then remembers him saying anything about where the idea for the actual Fight Club part of Fight Club came from. It wasn't until after the book came out that he started talking about it publicly. This is how he explained it to screenwriter Jim Ools in a commentary track on the Fight Club DVD. I had gone on a vacation. I'd been hiking and camping. And I had gotten into a really big fight with some people over noise at night in the woods. You know, some people who just had to bring some huge radio up to 3,000 feet on the Pacific Crest Trail. And I came back to work at the end of my vacation with my face just bashed. Nobody would acknowledge it because to acknowledge it, somehow they would have to find out something about my private life they just did not want to know. And they would say, so how was your weekend? Did you do anything interesting? And I'd be looking at them with two huge black eyes saying, no, how about you? And that was the genesis of Fight Club. But in writing the rest of it, the part where Fight Club takes its fateful turn into domestic terrorism, he drew on another part of his life. His experiences in the mid-90s as a member of a somewhat underground organization dedicated to mischief. Or, depending on how you look at it, mayhem. It was at a time in my life, in my, my late 20s, when I recognized that every good story that I told at a party started with the phrase, this one time in college, I was so drunk. And I recognized that I really hadn't had any kind of a life since college. And I was really looking for something that would replace those, this one time I was in college stories. In the 90s, while he was working at Freightliner and writing on the side, Chuck also got involved with the Portland chapter of the Cacophony Society, a very loose underground collective dedicated to culture jamming, street theater, pranks, urban exploration, and the pursuit of a good, weird time. Many years later, Chuck told an audience in San Francisco why he joined the group. Cacophony came in at that moment, and it gave me something in common with people more than just the fact that we were in the same room under fluorescent lights for nine hours a day, five days a week. It's a very Fight Club problem, right? You get up, you go to work, you talk to your coworkers about bullshit. You want me to deprioritize my current reports until you advise them a status upgrade? Make these your primary action items. Then you go home, or you go out and drink to blot out days not worth remembering. You're existing without really living. It's enough to make you want to do something crazy. 
We did a lot of uh, events that were uh, nominally illegal, although I would point out they were not unethical. Unethical is something you just know what it is and you don't do it. Illegal is almost always negotiable. John Law is one of the co-founders of the Cacophony Society and therefore a pivotal, if inadvertent, influence on Fight Club. John moved to San Francisco when he was 17 years old. I was looking for the party and, you know, it was 1976 and everybody I ran into, all the old hippies were toothless drug addicts and said that I missed the party, which was eight years before. And so I didn't pay any attention to that, fortunately. One day, John saw an ad in the newsletter of a local free alternative school, and that's how he found the party, in the form of the Suicide Club, a group dedicated to taking risks in order to get past everyday reality and access real reality. So looking at your life as though it were an adventure and you're in the middle of it and how do you accomplish things and how do you, how do you set goals that are, that are interesting and valuable and uh, pursue them in a way that's uh, you know, ethical and, and powerful. The Suicide Club was a more underground precursor to the Cacophony Society. They stripped naked on a San Francisco cable car during rush hour. They found a tunnel on the campus of Mills College that led into the sewers of Oakland and walked for miles under the city. They even climbed the Golden Gate Bridge. John did that a bunch of times. John loved to climb things. John also got involved with a group called the Billboard Liberation Front. Just like Project Mayhem does in the movie version of Fight Club, they'd go to work in the dead of night armed with paper and rubber cement, and in the morning, San Franciscans would look up and see a billboard that said something like, Gordon's Gin, it fucks you up. The Suicide Club lasted only a few years, but the spirit of the club lived on in the form of the Cacophony Society, which John Law and a few friends started in 1986. And as with the fictional Fight Club, Cacophony chapters soon began popping up in other cities. It was something different. It wasn't like going to a bar for the weekend. You know, it wasn't going out and having a few drinks and seeing a band. This is Marcy McFarlane, who you also heard at the top of this show. In the early 90s, Marcy and two friends organized the first Cacophony event in Portland, Oregon. They sawed the padlocks off an abandoned bus repair shed in southwest Portland and decorated the inside to look like a post-apocalyptic bomb shelter. And then they threw a party. How did you first meet Chuck Palnick? He came to a couple of the events. And that was it. The nature of Cacophony was that if you showed up, you were part of it. Their slogan was you may already be a member. One of the first ones I remember, we did a thing called um, Bad Art. It was called Art Mall. And we borrowed a uh, somebody's studio, and we had everybody bring just, like, really bad art. Anything you found at the Goodwill, anything that you painted, something weird like that. And um, he helped us set up that. He dressed up in a pair of chaps and pretended to speak French all night. John Law again. Cacophony, all it was ever was a mechanism for bringing people together to create their own reality, to, to create events, to collaborate. That's all it was. And, and not be buying everything, not, be, not having everything commodified. Not, you know, we pay for sex, we pay for entertainment, we pay for health, we pay for all, it's all a commodity. So a lot of people involved in Cacophony, you know, were or became really creative through these collaborative efforts, and some of them have gone on to do, you know, interesting things. And uh, that's why, in part, why Chuck wrote his book. Cacophony was basically an organization of people who had really boring jobs. They were letter carriers for the post office, they were 
bookstore clerks at Powell's. They were people who had really, you know, very structured hourly job lives. And so it was a way of having completely structured chaos in your life and being able to schedule that every week. But while Cacophony was a little like a fight club in that sense, it was also a lot like Project Mayhem. When Tyler Durden rebrands Fight Club and starts testing his minions by making them carry out increasingly dangerous anti-consumerist pranks, Fight Club basically becomes the Cacophony Society, except with way more property damage. Which brings us back to the Santas. Back in December 1994, an old school bus pulled up to what was then known as Justin Herman Plaza in San Francisco's financial district. And out of that bus came a group of people dressed in cheap mail-order Santa Claus suits, including John Law. We showed up with uh, 33 Santa, uh, 34 Santas, 5 Santa, I forget. And uh, we ended up having a snowball fight with a bunch of kids from a big pile of uh, snow and ice that had been scraped by a Zamboni off of the ice skating rink down in Embarcadero in San Francisco. Then they got back on the bus. They crashed a debutante ball at one of the fancy hotels up on Knob Hill. They got thrown out of a tiki bar or the Tonga Room while the lounge band played Here Comes Santa Claus. They bar hopped to a strip club called The Lusty Lady and hit the mosh pit in the Paradise Lounge. They marched through Macy's chanting, Charge it, charge it. Drunk Santas leaning on sober Santas. And that was, a, that was the first SantaCon. SantaCon was the ultimate cacophony creation. It was a happening an art project, and in its own drunken, madcap way, it was also a critique of Christmas as a consumerist holiday. Of course, if you've lived in Manhattan any time in the last decade or so, you know what SantaCon has become. It's New York's very worst holiday tradition. It's not about critiquing anything. It's about frat boys bar crawling in red suits and generally rendering the East Village and Midtown uninhabitable for one weekend every December. Sorry about that one, but uh, it was great fun when we first started it in Cacophony Society. It was really cool until the bros got into it is kind of the story of Fight Club as a pop cultural phenomenon, right? But it's also the story of a lot of things John has been a part of. Like in 1990, when the park police stopped two guys from burning a large human-shaped wooden effigy on a beach in San Francisco, something they'd been doing on the summer solstice for the past four years, which led to those guys deciding to instead burn the effigy in a vast dry lake bed during a weekend cacophony trip to Black Rock Desert in Nevada, organized by John Law. And that's how Burning Man started. Yeah, the influencers and P. Diddy and all that stuff came a lot later. The first two SantaCons took place in San Francisco, but in 1996, John Law and some associates took the show on the road. Our mistake was redoing the Santa Con thing over a couple of times. Santa Claus is coming to town. So you've got a bunch of jolly anarchists who are getting the attention of the authorities, but also kind of confusing them. The whole thing is a prank that also reads as a threat to the establishment in a way that the establishment can't quite process. This is Project Mayhem. Chuck has captured the spirit of cacophony in his book, which, quick chronological note, sorry, has been in bookstores for about five months when Christmas 96 rolls around and the Santas come to Portland. And when they get to Portland, they find that the cops are waiting for them. Marcy McFarland. Well, what happened is San Francisco had found out that they were coming up to Portland and they sent a memo to Portland telling them that these anarchists were coming up from San Francisco to destroy the city. 
December, this is bullshit. Police Bureau has received information of possible disturbance planned for the Portland area on December 14th. A group of 60 people will arrive from San Francisco by plane. Another group of about 30 will arrive from Los Angeles. And as it turned out later, I found out uh, through various means that that was a training session for the Portland police. They had recently gotten a hold of a lot of uh, ex-military uh, 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 hardware um, night goggles, uh, command station, you know, mobile command stations, that kind of thing. And so they needed to play with them. We were met by a SWAT team in a van on the uh, drive-through for the the airport. And we were met by two officers from the Portland Police Department Intelligence Bureau. And they're like, well, we heard you were here to like kind of mess things up. And so I remember pulling my wallet and showing the credit card. So you don't understand officers, like we're tourists, right? We're like the Elks Club. We're here to spend money and have fun at Christmas time. got chased all around by the Portland police for three days. That was a lot of fun. Um, uh, they finally relented when we didn't commit any crimes, and they were literally begging us to com- commit some crimes so that they could, like, arrest us and go home because they'd been on OTL. They literally had hundreds of cops following us around. So SantaCon 96 ended without bloodshed. But given the overwhelming police presence, that weekend in Portland was a tense context in which a guy walking around taking notes, as Chuck was doing for a potential magazine article, would attract not only attention, but suspicion. So when he came to the Sunday, the final thing after SantaCon, he, he gave a couple people a copy of Fight Club and said, oh, this is, this is what I write. So that's when we kind of realized that he was an actual writer and not just somebody spying on us. So, like, here's Chuck. He's finally a published novelist. He's taken his whole underground Portland life and turned it into a book that's in stores. So in one sense, he's made it. This is success. But remember, this book's going to sell 5,000 copies, which means nothing's really changed yet. Chuck's still going to Tom Spanbauer's workshops every week. At some point before Fight Club is published, Monica Drake goes away to grad school in Tucson for a few years, and when she gets back, she sees that her old workshop friend Chuck has a book out and decides to call him up and say congrats. It was great. One of our group had gotten a publication deal and uh the only number i had for him was his old freightliner number from before i went to grad school and i thought you know he sold a book he's gonna be out of there and i i called and he answered and it was great chuck did not quit his job at freightliner until 1998 when fight club was officially greenlighted as a major motion picture In 2013, he wrote the foreword to a book called Tales of the San Francisco Cacophony Society, co-written by John Law. That same year, Chuck and John appeared on a panel together at the Castro Theater in San Francisco. The event wasn't about Fight Club, but of course someone wanted to talk about Fight Club and whether the popularity of the book and especially the movie had undercut its anti-establishment message. This is what Chuck said. You know, in a way, I thought it was kind of the ultimate joke because at the time I understood that 20th Century Fox didn't want to make this movie. Fox got kind of blackmailed into making this. And in a way, I thought that, that it was the ultimate kind of cacophony thing and that it was something that people were doing because they wanted to do it, not because they wanted a paycheck at the end of it. And so it was that kind of spirit of cacophony on a big, big scale. Um, no idea. And it was a huge disaster. 
No. Like so many cacophony events. Exactly. <laughs> and that was the glory of cacophony, is that you went out there and sometimes you just look like an idiot. Mm. <laughs> In our next episode, how to make a bomb the Hollywood way. I mean, in all fairness, I don't think they knew what they had or how to market it because it was—it's it, not—it's not a, a simple movie to to sell. Fight Club gets a director. Who is going to direct it? Who's willing to direct it? And it kept going toward David Fincher. And somehow Rupert Murdoch ends up making an anti-capitalist movie. He just knew that it wasn't. It wasn't going to play to his crowd or to him. I don't think he gave a shit about anybody else. From Higher Ground, this is The Big Hit Show. It's written and hosted by me, Alex Papadimus, and produced by Western Sound. Colin McNulty is our showrunner. Producers are Sabrina Fang and Taylor Jones. Our production assistant is Stella Hartman. Alex McInnes is our composer, sound designer, and mix engineer. Savannah Wright is our fact checker. Studio direction and theme music by Dan Leone. The executive producer is Ben Adair. Our editor is Jamie York. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, Mukta Mohan, and Janae Marable. Jenna Levin is our editorial assistant. Executive producers for Spotify are Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, Julie McNamara, and Corinne Gilliard. Special thanks to Joe Paulson and Eric Spiegelman.